Winter greetings and salutations I bring thee, constant listeners, from a gray Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So let's create and shine some of our own thought light for these dreary Northern Hemisphere days of winter with another episode of The Far Middle, shall we? We premiere episode 138 on January 10, happens to be Save the Eagles Day. So how about we stop the taxpayer-subsidized development of what has become the most murderous aviary campaign in the history of man and since cats, which are wind turbines. Since when has saving the planet equated to killing the eagles with onshore wind and killing the whales with offshore wind? I thought we were looking to save both species. But you know, religions have histories of killing in the name of, to quote that socialist banner-waving rock group Rage Against the Machine. And radical environmentalism is indeed a religion, an intolerable one for sure. So killing eagles and whales in the name of is acceptable as long as you remain devout to the cause of Code Red. We're going to be talking about religion and ideologies and geopolitics this episode, all tied together by making those familiar, far-middle connections across the global map. Ease in and enjoy. But first, it's sports dedication time. And we've got a subject who fits well within the context of this episode's themes that I just mentioned. His story is quite the amazing one, so much so that it was captured in a popular book, Fighting Back, which also became a movie. We dedicate this episode to the one and only story of Robert Patrick Blyer, better known as Rocky Blyer. And let's dispense with that nickname, Rocky. How did he get it? Well, not from his playing style and his sport football, or even as a kid. The nickname was given to him when he was still in his crib. You see, he was born in Wisconsin, and his parents ran a bar. And Rocky was the firstborn of the family, and his dad, as you would expect, was quite proud, as all parents um, typically are. And the patrons of the bar, they would come in and they would ask Rocky's dad how the baby was. And his dad would answer with, you should see him, guys. He looks like a little rock sitting in that crib. He's got all these muscles. Well, the next time the patrons would come back to the bar, they would sort of modify their question by now asking, hey, how's that little rock of yours? And that's how Robert Patrick became Rocky. And like most nicknames, the wearer of it, he didn't have much say-so in the matter. Now, Rocky, of course, was a great athlete. He went to Notre Dame to play football, won the national championship his junior year in 1966, and he was a team captain as a senior in 1967. And then he ended up being selected late in the 1968 NFL-AFL draft by the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was the 417th overall pick. But his football exploits, as great as they were, and they were great, I can assure you of that. I I watched him when I was a kid. He won four Super Bowls with the Steelers and rushed for a 1,000 yards in a single season. But as great as those exploits were, that's not why we chose him as a dedication for the far middle. You see, it's what happened to him and how he responded off the field that put him on the level of greatness. And it ties to the Vietnam War. After his rookie season with the Steelers, Rocky got drafted again. This time he got drafted into the Army, and he volunteers for active duty in Vietnam. In 1969, while he was on patrol, he was shot in the left leg when his platoon was ambushed, and when he was down with that injury, an enemy grenade landed nearby after it bounced off of a fellow soldier. That grenade explodes, and it ends up severely damaging Rocky's lower right leg and foot. He ended up being awarded the Bronze Star and Purple Heart. And while he's recovering in a hospital in Tokyo, the doctors, they give him some tough news. They tell him that he cannot play football again. 
But right after that, he receives a postcard from iconic Steelers owner Art Rooney, and it was a simple note. It simply read, Rock, the team's not doing well. We need you, Art Rooney. Well, that motivated and inspired Blyer to prove those doctors and the medical experts wrong. So Blyer, he rejoins the Steelers in training camp in 1970, but at the time, he can't even walk without pain, and he only weighed 180 pounds. But he trains and he rehabs hard because, as he put it, he never wanted to have to ask himself down the road, you know, what if? What if I would have given it a go? He spent several grueling seasons trying to make it. He's actually waived by the Steelers twice, but he never gave up, and he ends up earning a spot on the Steelers' starting lineup. Yeah, it's an amazing story and an impactful life that many found inspirational. I mentioned that uh, Blyer wrote Fighting Back, the Rocky Blyer story and it was made into a TV movie in 1980. Robert Urich starred as Blyer, and none other than Art Carney played team owner Art Rooney and did a great job in that role. And another cool note from that movie that I remember watching with rapt attention when I was 12 years old, many of Blyer's Steelers teammates, including Mean Joe Green, they play themselves in the movie. So watch it when you get a chance to gain a better appreciation for episode 138's dedication subject of Rocky Blyer the man first, and the player second. We've got much to cover this episode, so we dive right into our first connection to Rocky Blyer, who was famous for doing what his book and movie title implored, Fighting Back. Now, when looking back, we see that the globe, since before World War I, has been fighting. And it's been a fight of ideologies, to be more specific. Capitalism and Western Republican democracy against those first cousins of socialism and communism, and they're somewhat polar, but also somewhat kindred spirit of fascism. And often this is a fight between classic liberalism and the left. Actually, when you think it through, that's how Rocky ended up in Vietnam. And that fight continues today more than ever. Over 120 years has settled nothing on this ideological front. And the trend today is quite disturbing if you enjoy quality of life and you like individual freedom and you desire achievement. But it wasn't that long ago, starting around the late 1980s and early 1990s, and perhaps up to and including today, where many elites and experts, they believed and insisted that the fight was over and that right prevailed over wrong and classic liberalism reigned supreme. Unfortunately, that all ended up being hogwash. And no single person or document captures that sense of overconfidence, bordering on smug arrogance of the West that permeated in the late 80s and 90s, and again, frankly, up till today, more than that 1989 classic paper titled with a question, The End of History. And that essay was by noted geopolitical analyst Francis Fukuyama, who, get this, has served as an advisor to Muammar Gaddafi and also has been a thought leader for the neoconservative movement. Now, how often do you see those two things combined together, right? So that Fukuyama paper, The End of History, it influenced many a policy and leader through the years. It was widely accepted as sage and the authority on how things should turn out geopolitically. And now that looks increasingly to have been an unfortunate thing. So it deserves a far middle closer look. And a simple series of quotes and sentences from the paper and then contrasting that view with how things sit in early 2024 proves the danger of elite overconfidence and the bad consequences that can flow from it. Now, the paper's opening paragraph 
from that 1989 um, publication. It sets the tone, and it starts with a key sentence. Quote, the past year has seen a flood of articles commemorating the end of the Cold War and the fact that peace seems to be breaking out in many regions of the world. So think about that uh, opening sentence or found in the opening uh, section of the essay. What is breaking out across the world today? When you look at Iranian nukes and Hamas terror and North Korean launches and Russians in Ukraine and China prowling Taiwan, is that peace breaking out? or more like the late 1930s when the Axis powers were aligning and starting to gear up. Fukuyama gets more specific in his essay. He wrote of, quote, ideological violence as liberalism contended first with the remnants of absolutism, then Bolshevism and fascism, and finally an updated Marxism that threatened to lead to the ultimate apocalypse of nuclear war. But the century that began full of self-confidence in the ultimate triumph of Western liberal democracy seems at its close to be returning full circle to where it started, not to an end of ideology or a convergence between capitalism and socialism as earlier predicted, but to an unabashed victory of economic and political liberalism, end quote. Now, do you feel today that classic liberalism is alive and well, that it's winning, in Putin's Russia or the Ayatollah's Iran? Is the free market running sort of on all cylinders in Xi's China? The argument that he was positing was that much of history and conflict stem from a war between ideologies, which is true then and now. But here's what Fukuyama missed or misjudged. He argued that the rival ideologies to Republican democracy and to the West and to capitalism, that those rivals were dead that they were vanquished, that they were beaten. Fascism and communism were wrecked and ruined. The first, fascism, was literally ruined by World War II bombs, both conventional and nuclear. And the latter, communism, was supposedly destroyed by, for lack of a better term, westernization and liberalization of places like China and Russia. Fukuyama, circa 1990, ended up being dead wrong about communism and socialism being dead, when you look at hindsight as we sit here in 2024. But once you think the alternatives are gone, then it's not a big logical leap to declare what Fukuyama said, that it's the end of history as such, or at least as we knew it. To quote him, that is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. That ended up being quite the wrong call. And the left, it might have been on the ropes in the late 1980s and 1990s, but it was far from the point of surrender. And now, lo and behold, the left and its ideologies, they have Western civilization on the brink and on the ropes. And if you want a perfect example of how bold statements that might feel good to say then, or might have enjoyed popularity then, can age horribly, consider these gems from the end of history essay. First one, the appeal of communism. In the developed Western world, it is safe to say, is lower today than any time since the end of the First World War. No, uh, Mr. Fukuyama, it was not, and it is not safe to say that today. And then another sentence, those who believe that the future must inevitably be socialist tend to be very old or very marginal to the real political discourse of their societies. Mr. Fukuyama needs to visit an Ivy League campus these days and see what the ideological vibe is that you pick up from the students and the faculty. And then there's a pair of sentences regarding China. 
They sit in close proximity to one another in the essay. So let me read you the first one. The past 15 years have seen an almost total discrediting of Marxism-Leninism as an economic system. And then the, uh, the second sentence, it's close by. But anyone familiar with the outlook and behavior of the new technocratic elite now governing China knows that Marxism and ideological principle have become virtually irrelevant as guides to policy and that bourgeois consumerism has a real meaning in that country for the first time since the revolution. Someone, including Fukuyama, should have checked with Chairman Xi first before writing that. Marxism and the left are the only ideologies and the only things that matter in China today. And that's by cold calculating design of the elite there that run it. And you start to see the once popular Western elite view that China would simply Westernize itself once it saw how great of a system we have here. Fukuyama followed that. He wrote in that 1989 essay that, quote, the pull of the liberal idea continues to be very strong as economic power devolves and the economy becomes more open to the outside world. There are currently over 20,000 Chinese students studying in the United States and other Western countries, almost all of them the children of the Chinese elite. It is hard to believe that when they return home to run the country, they will be content for China to be the only country in Asia unaffected by the larger democratizing trend, end quote. Too bad it was easy for Fukuyama to believe that, or for Wall Street or Washington, D.C. elites to believe that, or for Republican and Democrat presidents. They all believed it, and every one of them got it dead wrong. It wasn't until that Rube, Trump, that the West started to wake up. Yeah, the crude, angry, narcissist, egoist of social media got it right when the experts were getting it wrong, at least when it came to China. And it gets worse for the aging of musings from the end of history. I'll give you another quote uh, to illustrate that. The central issue is the fact that the People's Republic of China can no longer act as a beacon for illiberal forces around the world, whether they be guerrillas in some Asian jungle or middle-class students in Paris. Maoism, rather than being the pattern for Asia's future, became an anachronism and it was the mainland Chinese who, in fact, were decisively influenced by the prosperity and dynamism of their overseas co-ethnics, the ironic ultimate victory of Taiwan, end quote. Ouch. It is painful for me to read that to you, constant listeners, and I'm actually a bit embarrassed for Fukuyama. The Chinese Communist Party and the left in communism are beacons today for nations with things like the Belt and Road Initiative. They run the curriculum across Western higher education and elite academia, and they fund the chaos when it benefits them from Ukraine to Israel serving as examples. In Taiwan Victory, it doesn't even officially exist in co uh, corporate brochures and in foreign offices. And it may not actually exist as a country by year end or whenever China decides to move on it. Now, on Russia, Fukuyama was just as bad with his calls. He wrote that Russia was reforming and that it was moving towards society where, quote, people should be truly responsible for their own affairs, that higher political bodies should be answerable to lower ones, that the rule of law should prevail over arbitrary police actions, that there should be legal protection for property rights, the need for open discussion of public issues, and the right of public dissent, and of a political culture that is more tolerant.
end quote. Putin had to laugh when he read that. And I am, by the way, confident that Putin has read Fukuyama, as has Xi. The astounding global ideological transformation that Fukuyama professed to call was a complete misread and a sham, a historic blunder. And it influenced even more historic blunders by those in power who believed it and set policy off of it. On Russia, Fukuyama took to task in his essay those who said the fall of the communist state, the USSR, would lead to a more nationalistic Russia led by a strongman. He critiqued them, criticized them. He wrote, quote, the automatic assumption that Russia, shorn of its expansionist communist ideology, should pick up where the czars left off just prior to the Bolshevik revolution is therefore a curious one, end quote. It's not so curious now, is it? Just ask the Ukraine and Eastern Europe. And Fukuyama had the same view with China not going aggressive. He proclaimed, Chinese competitiveness and expansionism on the world scene have virtually disappeared. Beijing no longer sponsors Maoist insurgencies or tries to cultivate influence in distant African countries as it did in the 1960s. Yeah, like I said, painful to read such inaccuracy. The opening paragraph of the essay's conclusion does a great job of summarizing the failures that is the end of history and all of its apostles that followed it faithfully. Quote, the passing of Marxism-Leninism, first from China and then from the Soviet Union, will mean its death as a living ideology of world historical significance. For while there may be some isolated true believers left in places like Managua, Pyongyang, or Cambridge, Massachusetts, the fact that there is not a single large state in which it is a going concern undermines completely its pretensions to being in the vanguard of human history. And the death of this ideology means the growing common marketization of international relations and the diminution of the likelihood of large-scale conflict between states. Yeah, I've said it before. I've said it on the far middle with prior episodes. I wrote it in my book, Precipice, and I'm going to state it again here. Never, ever underestimate the left. It comes at great peril for the individual and for society. Because what happens when you do underestimate the left, that leads us right into our next connection. That of the new ideology and its value system that the left superimposed on the West once experts and elites like Fukuyama assured us and convinced everyone that communism and socialism and the left were dead and that China and Russia would start behaving like us. So how we should behave in the end of history era, that was a big question. It was a vacuum that needed to be filled. And ironically, the very ideology Fukuyama said was eradicated, communism, socialism, the left, that was the entity to fill that vacuum of values in the West. So what did the left fill our culture and values with? Well, it is certainly secular in nature, to the point where it becomes not just ideology, but ironically, a new religion. Think about that. So secular that it morphs into a religion with true ardent believers, I might add. Now, some call it postmodernism, and its foundational pillars are evident with the big ideas and movements of today. It manifests, and you see it in the expert class, when they demand that the global or universal issue or concern, that those supersede and take primacy over the national or local issues, that there's an ethical duty and responsibility with such thought to put yourself and your community and your country behind and make it secondary to what is best for the public good or the planet or humankind. 
with the select few getting to decide just which things help the globe or the universal, of course. And it leads to macro trends such as one-way globalization and more local trends such as open borders that we see every day. And by the way, think about the open border issue all over the world these days. You see it in Texas, of course, but also big time in Italy. And even of all places, Finland, as I've recently seen with its border on Russia. The enemies of the West and the left, they use open borders as an effective divisive tool against us. And another manifestation of this new belief system by the left is a religious fervor on the code red and climate change front. Sort of tied to the first, where the planet is in peril and we must take a back seat with our interests in place in life to go tackle climate change. And some would say this is a symptom or tactic of the first manifestation, but I think it looms so large these days, touching literally everything, that it deserves to be placed out as its own foundational pillar of the left's new end of history toolkit. And then the third manifestation is not an ethnic cleansing, but a values cleansing, Orwellian in many ways, wiping away, erasing, vilifying, and yes, canceling the prior values of the West and of capitalism and of the individual and its rights of America, ignoring science and replacing factual history with subjective fiction. You know, we could spend an entire episode or two for that matter on current examples of this element at play. The good news, I suppose, is that many thought leaders out there, including a guy I read all the time, Gerard Baker of the Wall Street Journal, they're calling this a tipping point, where the new ideology that the left injected into that vacuum created by the end of, end of uh, history crowd, it starts to get exposed as flawed, and the societal tide, so to speak, starts to turn against it. I hope he, Baker, and those like Baker are right, but I'm not confident that they are. And why my doubts? Because today, the left hasn't just injected the new ideology into this end of history time, but the left is running all the wheels of power and influence necessary to keep such ideology in place, to keep it fed, and to keep it protected. Academia indoctrinates on behalf of the left, and then those graduates, they leave the campus quad and they enter the halls of government in corporate America, where they end up leading both in setting policy for the former. And those minions, they end up in what has become the Ministry of Propaganda for the left coming out of university into aka mainstream media. Yeah, I've got my doubts about the tide turning now, constant listeners. I fear it gets worse for America before better, and I truly hope that I am very wrong on that point. Let's wrap this episode paying tribute to someone that today's left dislikes bordering on hates, and someone where the, uh, the Ministry of Propaganda, that mainstream media that I referenced, is working tirelessly to attack. Happy birthday this week, January 13th, to Horatio Alger. He was born in 1832 and was the author of popular stories that told tales of basically rags to riches successes that were achieved through a combination of virtue and luck and hard work. So if someone references a person as being a real-life Horatio Alger story, it signifies a person who rose from nothing or from poverty or from challenges and achieved great things. But, you know, I'm sorry to report that the poster boy for the American dream is under attack from the left these days, including the Horatio Alger Association of Distinguished Americans, which is a charity dedicated to Alger's legacy, and get this, has awarded more than $245 million 
in college scholarships to 35,000 students since 1984. Amazing. In the group of distinguished Americans in the association, there's about 300 of them. They're our best and brightest. They include all kinds of different individuals that you've heard of, including Oprah, uh, the president of the Horatio Alger Association's Endowment Fund is money manager Lee Cooperman, who, by the way, I knew personally and who was a major shareholder for companies that I've worked for in the past. And I can assure you that Mr. Cooperman is the epitome of a Horatio Alger story. So the association clearly is a great thing. And its mission, sort of paraphrasing from its website, is to educate youth about the limitless possibilities that you find available through the American free enterprise system. And the group was founded to dispel the myth that the American dream was dead, that it was no longer attainable. And its members are there to serve as role models. So when you look at them and their stories, they can sort of be examples of opportunities for what a successful life looks like if you're willing to work hard and persevere and have integrity. So why is none other than the New York Times, along with a host of left-leaning media outlets, why are they taking aim at this association? What explains the recent onslaught of critical press coverage? And there's been an onslaught of it. You add it up, there's been scores of reporters publishing thousands of words recently, taking it to the Horatio Alger Association and its members. Well, I think the answer is that the left hates what Horatio Alger and the association stands for, which, as I said, is the American dream. But most of us love Horatio Alger stories. But the left, not so much. Those stories and examples, they contradict the fiction of the left that America is bad, that achievement, upward mobility, they're prohibited by all kinds of problems and societal issues from income inequality, greed, right? Success stories of the self-made. Those stories fly counter to the justification of policies that the left supports from heavy taxation to value appropriating the doers. Um, to dropping standardized test scores at colleges, to all kinds of different entitlement programs. Horatio Alger-style stories, they have to be debased. They have to be eroded to defend and to bolster the ideology of the left. And that's where mainstream media comes to the attack. And there's all kinds of, of books out there that run through the corridors of, of academia where there's actual chapter titles in these books that are titled The Horatio Alger Lie. Um, Rolling Stone, one of your host's favorite magazines, Not, um, recently published an article about the myth of American upward mobility. And now here's some definite leftist irony for you. Um, the Atlantic magazine referenced a lot of dislike for Horatio Alger with an article about America's most insidious myth. And the author of that piece was herself a Horatio Alger scholarship recipient. But she goes on in that article to write how that believing in underprivileged teens, if they study hard and they prove their worth and they, they go through higher education and get some help, they can make it in America. Um, that she, I think the term she used, that's a fable. Again, a lot of irony there. But back to the, uh, the New York Times. One of its columnists had a column titled, America is the Lie of Personal Responsibility. And basically surmised that uh, Horatio Alger stories, um, they left an imprint on the American soul that was an unhelpful one. And that this obsession with personal responsibility, it can explain it's the root cause of a lot of problems as the, uh, as the columnists saw it 
when it came to lack of mandatory paid family leave and lack of universal health care and lack of uh, national pre-K and those types of things. The message from the left is the same. The personal effort and self-achievement, they don't matter because the system is stacked against you. Only government and the elites can help you. So go depend on them and don't depend on yourself. Constant listeners, and the words of public enemy, don't believe the hype when it comes to the left. Horatio Alger and all that he stood for in his stories, they're legitimate and real as long as policy and culture allow individuals to freely achieve. That's all I've got for episode 138. Um, Stay warm over this week, drive carefully, and we'll talk in seven more days.